Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I've pretty much grown up in this church since I was a little boy. Uh, Really, I was the first baby that was dedicated in this church, and I've grown up seeing my father speak from this pulpit. So it is an incredible privilege tonight for me to be here and to be able to speak to his congregation and to God's people. And uh, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here tonight. But let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here tonight And have a blast, Lord. Just have fun, fellowship with one another, hear about the cool things you're doing through student ministries, God. I pray that you will open up our hearts and our minds right now, that your word will pierce us to our hearts, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it will change our lives and bring forth things that you desire for us to change. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and pre-mark your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse 13 to 25. Right now in vertical, we're going through a series called The Word from Beginning to End, a study through the book of John. And this is a message we just taught this past week in vertical, so I figured we might as well let you guys know what we're teaching your students. But as most of you know, I recently got married. And thank you. And And I've got to tell you guys, it's a different lifestyle. It's a completely different lifestyle. And one thing that I've had to learn is that it's a lot different living with a woman. Now, all the married guys in here, you know what I'm talking about. It's a completely new, it's like an entire new, new universe. And one difference that I've had to learn is the way in which you live. See, I've been a bachelor for a while, so I'm used to coming home and throwing my clothes around the house, keeping food out overnight, uh, you know, going to the restroom and not putting the seat down when I'm done, all those different things. But when Janae moved into my house, things had to change, and things had to change drastically. Well, tonight we're going to see what happens when God comes to church. And the answer is when God comes to church, He changes things. You know, we're in the holiday season right now. We just passed Thanksgiving. Christmas is coming up. And soon, New Year's will be upon us. And we're all going to make those New Year's resolutions. And I heard of an interesting uh, tradition done in Italy on New Year's Eve. At 12 o'clock midnight, when when the clock strikes 12, they open up their windows and they throw all the things from the past year out the window. Now... It seems strange, but they literally throw anything that reminds them of the past year out the window. Ornaments, old CDs, TVs, whatever it is that they don't like about last year, they'll just toss out the window. So you got to be careful in Italy on New Year's Eve. You don't want to get like a couch to the head. That's never a good thing. But it symbolizes your readiness to accept the new year. Now, I wish that's how cleaning was for me. It's like, ah, here's this mess out the window. That's a good place for it. Deal with it next year. But my wife is always cleaning. I mean constantly. It's like she's Mrs. Clean. And when she does it, she does it immaculately. It's like a 10-hour process. And you know, it's great because, once again, I've been a bachelor for so long that now I come home and, you know, there's things that are dusted. There's trash that's in a trash can, if you believe it or not. There's clothes that are folded, a meal on the table. It's incredible. My horizon has been broadened. And, you know, this is... 
so in contrast to the way I clean. Because I do the surface clean. You know, you take your mess and put it into the drawer. So when people come over, they say, Nate, you did a great job. It really looks clean in here. Until they open the closet and then the mess falls out on top of them. And that's the way that I do it. You know, I say to myself, I'll get around to it later. And really that means I'll get around to it when I can't see my desk anymore. Or when I can't walk into my office. You know, I clean once in a while. But it's only when it's necessary. But Janae is constantly cleaning. She is constantly in that phase. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we're going to see tonight, a similar dynamic comes into play. See, we can wait in our lives until some major messes come within our hearts. Until some serious sin overruns our soul and we have to clean it out of necessity. Or we can be in a continual process, a cleaning process of confessing our sins to God. Some people will throw away years of their life, decades of their life, and have periodic comebacks. Will they get all their stuff together? Will they get back on the right track? Will they correct their ways? But then, just like a New Year's resolution, slowly over time, they gradually go back to the old ways and the old problems reappear again. And when you get down to it, The real problem is that we need a professional to clean our lives. Before Janae moved in, she gave me an ultimatum. She said, before I move into that house, you have to have it professionally cleaned. Because it was so messy. It was so bad, so dusty, stuff all over the place that she couldn't do it. And I wasn't going to do it. So she said, you have to have a professional clean that house. You know, it was too bad, too messy, for myself or her to do it. So we had to hire a professional. And the truth is, is we can't clean up our own lives. We can't try as we may get to the real problems in our life. We need God's help. We need a professional to come in and do the job and clean house. Let's look at our text and see what happened on the day that Jesus did just that. John chapter chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover... Of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, 
This is a story that we've all heard. We've all seen in movies about Jesus. We all picture Jesus coming in here in a rage of anger. But I want to point out something. This was not an explosion of anger on the part of Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't fly off the handle like we might. Jesus doesn't lose it. His anger here is a righteous indignation. And what angered him is the very people, the priests, that were supposed to be praying for the people were praying on the people. Verse 15 says, when he had made a whip of cords. Now we picture this story of Jesus running in, very angry, very bitter, just walking in and throwing tables around at the spur of the moment. But it says he made a whip of cords. This is something that took time. So, you know, I picture it like this. I picture Jesus kind of standing in a corner, looking at these people, changing the money, making this whip of cords. And you can kind of picture the people, hey, what's he doing? I don't know. He's making a whip. Yeah, why is he staring at us like that? I don't know. It can't be good, though. You know, Jesus is sitting here making this whip of cords. And, you know, it's kind of like some of you parents making your kids wait in their room while you go get the paddle. You know, that's what I picture it like. You wait here. Your dad's going to come with the paddle. And they know what's coming. That's half the punishment, that anticipation of, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And that's basically what this is like. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was premeditated. And this certainly flies in the face of that stereotypical effeminate kind of Jesus. You know, the one with the lamb wrapped around his neck, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, kind of talks in a voice like this, and he just loves everybody. You know, it flies in the face of that. Never forget that Jesus was in every sense a man's man. He was a carpenter. He had calluses on his hand. He was probably very muscular. He was the kind of guy that when you say, hey, I'm going to go to more furniture for less and go buy a table. Jesus says, I'll make it for you out of scrap wood in my backyard. That's the kind of guy Jesus was. He was a man's man. And you know, recently there's a term that's come into existence called metrosexual that the Urban Dictionary defines as this. An urban straight male ranging in age from the late teens to the mid thirties who is good looking, stylish, fashionable, trendy, cultured, and well-groomed. A metrosexual is often associated with getting manicures, facials, and massages, as well as using products on his hair and shopping at nice clothing stores. Well, I've got news for you. Jesus was not a metrosexual. Jesus was a man's man. He was a worker and he was a hard worker. And you picture him going in there, his strong, muscular arms overturning these thick marble tables. And we're not talking about like East Foyer tables that are plastic and really easy to throw over. I mean, these were several hundred pounds that he was throwing over. And what angered him was this perverting of the house of God, the perverting of the purpose of the house of God. And I don't know about you, but I want to know what makes Jesus angry. I want to know what he hates as well as what he loves. And I'm sure you've all either told somebody or been told that hate is a very strong word. And the truth is, it is a strong word. But here we see something that Jesus hates. Scripture specifically identifies seven things that makes God angry. Seven things that he hates. In Proverbs 6 verse 16, if you want to mark it down, it says, There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. 
The first one we see there is a proud look. Now, a proud look is simply a reflection of a prideful person. And while pride is generally prized in our culture, to be prideful means you accomplish something. In the eyes of God, in the kingdom of heaven, it's a sin. And what it speaks of is a person who is full of themselves. The person who thinks that they can do it all on their own. You know, they're the bomb.com, as we might say in the high school group. That they are the king of the world. They don't need God's help because they can do it all on their own. The one who wants their will above God's. And remember, pride was the first sin ever committed, both by an angelic being and by humans. Lucifer was guilty of it when he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be in the place of God. And then Eve was guilty of it when she wanted that fruit, which was desired to make one wise. You know, you'll generally find pride at the root of most sin. Wanting to make yourself better, make yourself wealthier, make yourself appear smarter. Pride can be found at the root of most sin. Number two, a lying tongue. Now, the tongue, the human body, was created to glorify God. So to use your tongue to lie is a direct perversion of its use. You know, it's used to glorify and magnify the Lord, not to tear people and tear things down. And I'm sure we can all think of someone that we know that lies all the time. You know that person that you really don't know what the truth is anymore? You don't know the truth from the, from the false? It's all just kind of one big thing. You can't really tell if someone's ever sincere. We all know somebody like that. And the truth is, is that God hates it. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. And sadly, this one has become too much of a commonplace in our culture today. If you're like me, you turn on the news and it can be depressing sometimes. You see shootings, stabbings, someone getting trampled at Walmart. You know, you see all these things and it just becomes commonplace. You hear it every night. You can always become dull to it. People lose their lives because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Killing, especially among gangs, has become a rite of passage to show that you're tough, that you have courage, that you're strong. You know, can I speak frankly? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Showing you're brave and courageous by shooting an innocent person in a drive-by? That's not courageous. That's cowardly. That's cowardly. Because you're showing that you're not a real man. You have to shoot someone else. You have to take someone else's life to make yourself feel better. God hates this and it will not go unavenged. Number four, a heart that devises wicked schemes. And this refers to that person that is always planning or plotting some evil deed against someone else. You know, in a very innocent way, I picture it like a little kid who always has that devious look on their face. They're always going to get into trouble, except carry that on about 30 years on top of that. And it's someone actually plotting evil schemes. It might be business dealings, trying to take money from somebody else. Maybe personal vendettas, or maybe it's just pure spite, anger towards another person. Number five, feet that are quick to rush into evil. So not only does God hate the mind that plans evil, but he hates the feet, the people that carry out that evil deed. You know, some people have a knack for just hanging out with the wrong crowd and doing the wrong things. They may not be the one planning it, but they're certainly the ones that are carrying it out and doing the wrong things. Number six, a false witness who pours out lies. This refers primarily to the person who is lying in a court of law, a public testimony to frame or to harm somebody. A person who would pervert justice for their own ends. And number seven, and this one, if you're like me, is kind of scary. 
a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. The amazing thing is God places division among the church, dividing the body in the same category with murderers, liars, and perjurers. Question for you tonight. When you read that list, are you doing any of these things? Can you place yourself in any of those categories? Full of arrogance, lying, causing division, plotting someone else harm? Stop it. Stop it. God hates it. Not he strongly dislikes it. He hates it. He loves you so much that he hates to see you do those things. So here we see these religious rip-off artists were violating a number of these things, including lying and devising wicked schemes. And basically what was happening is if a person wanted to come in and pay temple tax, they had to exchange their money for something called half shekels. Basically, this was like temple monopoly money. But what the money changers were doing is they were saying, if you brought in your $20, they would give you $5 worth of the temple money. Basically jacking up the cost and ripping the people off. And that angered God. Because see, God doesn't like it when he's misrepresented. God doesn't like it when these very people that were supposed to be bearing witness to the name of God were instead making him look like a big bully, taking people's money. Now, if Jesus had been the militant Messiah that people wanted, if he had been the Lambo that everybody was looking around for, then he would have brought an army into Jerusalem. He would have marched right to the Roman garrison, to the Antonio Fortress, and taken down the Romans, taken down the pagan, the pagan democracy. And he would have ruled with an iron fist. But instead, we see him not come and attack the pagans of Rome, but he comes to his own people the ones who had gone astray and who were misleading people. See, the main issue for Jesus was not Rome's army, but God's temple. It was at his house that the cleaning had to begin, with his people. And this is a constant theme that we see in the, in the Bible, that whenever Israel's worship was wrong, their government would fall apart. They had to get the worship right first. We've been seeing this through the Bible from 30,000 feet for the past year. Whenever Israel would start worshiping somebody else or would take their eyes off of God and on to human beings, the government crumbled. So Jesus comes and he deals with the people of God first. The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to the people. You know, I think as a church, sometimes we pay too much attention on trying to bring governmental change. We spend too much attention on who is in the office. We believe that somehow this is going to help our culture and society. We recently went through a huge election where people were campaigning for change, to bring about change. And you know, whether or not it comes, the truth is, in the end, we know that the Bible says things are ultimately going to get worse, not better. So what's the point? of focusing on all this governmental change. We should do what the Bible tells us to do and focus on ourselves. Focus on the church and make ourselves right before we focus on the government. God, in his prescription for revival, in his prescription for revival, he points his finger directly at us. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. You say, well, that's great, Nate. 
But what does Jesus cleansing the temple have to do with me? It's important to realize we no longer have a tabernacle, a temple where God dwells. God doesn't dwell in a cathedral or some beautiful building. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 6.19 when he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know, perhaps God would like to cleanse your temple. Perhaps God would like to come into our hearts and cleanse our temple, cleanse our tabernacle. Maybe there's something in your life or mine that would anger God. Well, when he comes into our lives, when God comes to church, which is within us, a definite cleaning process must take place. Out with the old and in with the new. Out goes your life controlled and dominated by all those countless sins that have piled up and created a lifestyle that is displeasing to God. Out with that lifestyle and in comes a life with new priorities, new desires, and a new power to live God's desires out in your life. This is conversion. If any man be in Christ, he is an altogether different type of person. A different person. You can see the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. They don't look the same. They're a different breed of people. They do different things. They go to different places. They watch different movies. They listen to different music. They talk to different people. They're a new person, not the same person. Now, an interesting thing to consider is that Jesus had to cleanse the temple a second time, if you remember. The second time came later on in his ministry really close to the end when he came into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And you know, when you first give your heart to Christ, you have those instantaneous changes that happen right away. And you feel excited about it. Yeah, I'm changing. God's in my life. Things are becoming new. I'm not the same person. But then as time passes, if you don't continue that process, the messes start to build up again. The junk comes back in. It pollutes your life again. And you have to have time for a second cleansing. As in the temple, Jesus cleansed things and they ran well for a while. It ran good. And then that one guy came in with his table and set it up again, jacked the prices back up, made some more money. And then another person came in. And slowly over time, it got worse and worse until it was even worse than it was before because they knew better. Same way in our own lives, the temple of our lives. When we allow that first evil habit back in, that first little indulgence, that first sin to creep back in, when we've been cleansed by God, slowly it mushrooms and gets bigger and bigger until our lives are cluttered with the cares and concerns of the world and the love of God and the love of His Word and spiritual growth is choked out. So Jesus comes back and is ready to clean house again. So maybe you're that person who needs Christ for the first time. You need Jesus to march into your heart with the whip and everything and come in there and get you right, get you on track with God. Or maybe you've been cleansed. Maybe you know God, but you've let that dust begin to settle. You've let the mess come back. And you need God to come in and do some spiritual house cleaning within your heart. 
Jesus is ready. The question is, are you? Look at verse 19 with me. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, here we see Jesus do something that he does quite often. He speaks in spiritual terms. And he did this all the time in the Bible. And there was always those people who were spiritually tuned into him that understood. And then there was those that were kind of standing like this. Okay. All right. I'm tracking with you, Jesus. When they really weren't. And many times people who weren't really listening did not understand what he was saying. This happened in the case of Nicodemus. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he said, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Sometimes I read the Bible and I look at these guys. I'm like, dude, what are you thinking, man? It's like, well, clearly, Nicodemus, we don't expect you to crawl into your mother's womb and be born again. It's clearly not possible. And you see people like this, all the the disciples are the best at doing these kind of things. And, you know, we ridicule them. And then I look at my own life and I go... Well, okay, I guess I kind of see where they're going with that whole situation there. But the same happened with the woman at the well. Jesus was speaking of satisfying a deep spiritual thirst from her immoral lifestyle. And he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. See, he wasn't speaking of the literal temple that Herod built that started in 20 AD and was finished in AD 64. He was speaking of his temple, the temple of his own body, meaning that he would raise himself again after he had died. Sometimes we paint Jesus into this idea that he was a victim, that he was forced into hanging on the cross, that some mean Romans and Jews took him and put him on a tree and it was against his own will. But this doesn't sound very much like a victim. It sounds like he knew what was going to happen. He knew what was coming for, coming for him and he willingly accepted it because he knew that he would conquer death and in that we could have eternal life. Jesus wasn't a victim. He came with a purpose and that purpose was on his mind from the day he came. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. It says many believed in him. Judging from the polls, it would appear that many Americans believe in God also. 95% of Americans say they believe in God. 95% say they believe in heaven. 87% believe in the resurrection of Christ. 84% believe in the survival of the soul after death. 81 in miracles. 78% believe in the virgin birth. 72% believe in the devil. 71% believe in hell. And 79% of adults describe themselves as Christians. Man, believing in Jesus is more popular than ever. You don't have to worry about persecution, getting stoned. It's popular now. I mean, Ashton Kutcher, Madonna, Britney Spears, Brad Pitt, Pamela Anderson all claim that Jesus is my homeboy. It's popular. Wear a shirt, put on a hat, you're set. 
On television, Jesus appears in both The Simpsons and South Park. Dog the bounty hunter prays to Jesus on every episode before each manhunt. Over 100 films have been made about Jesus. One, my favorite, entitled Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. In the film Talladega Nights, Will Ferrell prays to an 8-pound, 6-ounce newborn infant Jesus wrapped in golden fleece. Musically, everyone from rapper Kanye West to punk rock band Green Day are singing about Jesus. Even John Lennon said, we're more popular than Jesus. But do they know him? Do they know him? If we look at the changes that the Bible says occur in a true conversion, the answer is no. The world does not know him. They might sing songs about him, put him on a shirt, put him in a movie, but they do not know him. The same was true with these people. See, Jesus being God could look into all men and all women, and he knew the real conversion from the false one. You could say it this way. They believed in him, but he did not believe in them. Or they trusted him, but he did not trust them. Questions, why? Why? Because he knew what was in them. He sees us for what we are. He sees our hearts. He sees right through the facade we put up, the mask we put on from work to church when we're around our church friends and when we're around our work friends. He sees past the facade. There's no secrets with him. Romans 8.27 says he is the searcher of hearts. The Bible says, who knows hearts? And the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Yet in spite of all that, in spite of all our shortcomings, all of our failures, he loves you just the same. He died for your sins He died for my sins just as much as he died for everyone else. He immediately knew the real character of Simon. He knew who Nathanael was when he said, an Israelite in whom there is no hypocrisy. He told the woman at the well all the things that she had done. You know, the people that it's talking about here had a shallow belief. Not in Jesus and the purpose he came, but in the miracles that he performed. See, they were looking for some magic show. They were looking to be dazzled, to be impressed, for excitement. They saw Jesus and they thought it was cool, it was exciting. But as the excitement wore off, they began to move on. The same miracles that would later take Nicodemus to Jesus caused some of the other religious leaders to want to kill him. And as we follow the life of Christ throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus started in the bright light with the miracles, and then he slowly faded from popularity into the dark shadows of rejection. See, at first it was easy to follow Jesus. Man, he's healing lepers. He's turning water into wine. He's, he's helping people out, making the lame walk. But then the message comes along with those miracles, and it goes to the heart. It pierces the heart, and it started to cause conviction. And conviction leads to one of two things, either conversion or opposition. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral with God. You can't just say, hey God, if you don't interfere with my business, then I won't interfere with yours. Maybe we can just be like buddies, not really hanging out with each other, but just cordially friends. It's impossible to be neutral. People had to decide to either follow him or reject him, and most decided against him. These people wanted to be dazzled by signs and wonders. Essentially, they were saying, show me and I'll believe. And all the while, Jesus was saying, believe and I'll show you. 
Believe and I'll show you. The question tonight is what happens when God comes to church? The answer is things change. And I think there's things in our lives that need changing. When we look deep within ourselves, there's things that we need to come to terms with and say, yeah, I need Jesus to come do some spiritual house cleaning in my life. Just as he cleansed the temple, Jesus Christ is ready to come and clean up your life. Maybe you've tried to change your life. Maybe you've tried to become a better person, to be more caring, to be more loving and considerate. But every day you wake up and you're the same person with the same problems. And you wonder, what's going on? I want to be better. I want to follow Christ. What's happening? Maybe you're trapped by drugs or alcohol or whatever. Jesus does not say, clean up your life and then come to me. Jesus says, come to me and I will clean up your life. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word that changes our lives, that cuts us to the soul, that demands us to change, to stop living in our old ways and become new people. Lord, I pray that you will speak to our hearts tonight. And if there's change that needs to occur within our hearts, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will convict us and bring us to the point where you can be in control. We thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to gather together, worship you, and hear from your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.